Man. Yes, God's word a hand. Man. Yes. Hey, we, uh, good morning, Redemption. <laughs> hey, we have baptisms coming up in two weeks on May 29th, our baptism party. And so if you are wanting to follow Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have not been baptized yet, I want to invite you to uh, sign up for our class next week. I'm going to be teaching a class. We'd love to meet you, hear some of your story. And so that's next week, May 22nd is the class. You can sign up for that on our app. And then the following week, May 29th, we're all going to party and celebrate together all those who are entering new life in Christ. Uh, for those who are interested in being baptized, it's a sign of going to this public proclamation of I am identifying my life with Jesus, a sign of being united with him in his death and resurrection, this public proclamation that I am with Christ because I know he is with me. All right, well, I don't know about you, but I love playing Capture the Flag as a kid growing up. How many of you remember Capture the Flag, right? Yeah, we would get kind of one of our brightly colored t-shirts and we'd go and hide it in a tree or hide it in a rock. It had to be partly visible, right? But we would split up onto teams and, and then we would go out and you would try and get into the enemy side of their territory and you would go after to try and capture their flag. And now you had to get over obstacles like boulders or trees and things of that nature. Now you wanted to capture the flag, but you didn't want the other team to capture you. And so if you got captured, you were held captive, you were put in the quote-unquote little jail, right? And, and in this jail, uh, you, you know, would have to do something like maybe do 100 jumping jacks or get your friend to come in and tag you. Uh, but while you were in captivity, there was this reality, you were still on your team, but you were no longer useful. Right? Like you were still identified with, you had the jersey, you had the whatever, uh, but you were still identified with your team but you were taken out of being effective for your team. And this morning, I want to show you how to not get taken captive. How to not get taken captive. We are in Colossians 2. And so if you have your Bible, I want to turn there to Colossians chapter 2. And Paul, in this passage we're in today, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. He is going, there is a battle going on, and I want to make sure that you are not taken captive and so we're going to look at what are these things that Paul's concerned that they could take us captive. And Paul's saying the reality is when you get taken captive, you might still be identified with your team, right? You might, you might still be on Team Jesus and have the jersey and all that, but you are no longer effective for the kingdom when you are taken captive. You might still be heading towards the victory at the end of the game, but you are taken out of being useful for the kingdom of God here and now. And so... What are these things that we need to be on guard against being taken captive by? And how do we avoid being taken captive so that we can participate in the joy and the fun of Christ and his victory in the earth? The title for the message today is Out of Captivity. And so let's jump in. Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. We read, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive. Everyone say captive. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul says here, don't get taken captive by bad ideas. 
Paul says, don't get taken captive by bad ideas. In this game, so to speak, that we are in, in this battle that we are in, uh, there are things that want to take you captive, only these things are actually, part of this is bad ideas. He says, philosophy according to human tradition. Now, when Paul talks about philosophy uh, being a bad thing, he's not saying that faith is anti-intellectual. He's not saying check your brain at the door when you become a Christian, uh, because Christianity actually makes the best sense of the world that we live in. But he is speaking to a context where there were many philosophies in his day. And so these philosophies were attached to different cults. And so you have the cult of Artemis and the cult of Zeus and the cult of Caesar. And these cults had different philosophers who would travel and they would speak on behalf and represent the different cults that they uh, represented according to these human traditions. And the philosophers were not necessarily all that smart. <laughs> the historian Robert Louis Wilkin, he notes on these philosophers that, quote, the appeal of the philosopher frequently had less to do with the teachings of his school than with how the philosopher dressed. Hmm, that sounds familiar. <laughs> what kinds of success he could promise its adherents and which philosophy was fashionable and highly regarded in influential circles. These were ancient YouTube stars, right? <laughs> pop psychology influencers. And so he goes on to say, these philosophers became hucksters, salesmen marketing the ideas and beliefs of their respective schools. They offered advice on how to live one's life and deal with personal problems, appealing less to reason and logic than to emotion and feeling. So these philosophers and their philosophies were attractive more because of the flashy dress and the life hacks they were promoting and the memified mottos they would offer that were saying, here's how to get your best life. And the Christians in Colossae were wrestling with going, man, these are attached to these different cults. Do we take some of that, none of that, all of that? How do we navigate this? And as I was thinking through today, I would say today, we no longer have the cult of Artemis or the cult of Zeus or the cult of Caesar, but... I would suggest that one of the most pertinent cults of our day, there is a cult that we face today. And one of the most pertinent cults of our day that I think we need to be most aware of, particularly for our context here at Redemption Tempe, is the cult of self. The cult of self. This is a worldview, an idea, a way of viewing the world where everything is ordered around myself and my protection. And this cult of self today has a number of lies that get promoted with it. And so I want to look at two of these lies today. I'm kind of adapting this from a book by Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind. But the lie number one we want to look at is this, the lie that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The lie that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. This is the lie that you are yourself and you need to protect yourself from anything painful or difficult or challenging because even if that thing doesn't kill you, it's ultimately gonna diminish you. It's gonna make your life harder and that just means you're gonna make you weaker. But the, that's the lie. The truth is actually that you are anti-fragile. Anti-fragile is a term developed by guy Nicholas and Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he talks about three categories. We can put people in, put things into three different categories. First, you have things that are fragile. It's like a teacup, right? You drop it and shatters and breaks. Second would be like a rubber cup, right? That's what you give your toddler or your kid because you know, man, when they break it, it's going to be able to be resilient and, and, and resist that. So you've got things that are fragile. You've got things that are resilient. They can absorb and withstand the shock. This is, there's a third category. It's what he calls anti-fragile. And he says, anti-fragile is something where it's not just resilient where you can take the shock. Anti-fragile is like hard and difficult things actually make it stronger. So if you think of something like an immune system, 
where being exposed to germs and pathogens make your immune system stronger. Or you think of your muscles. If you're lifting weights, like that tension and stress you put on your muscles like actually helps them grow stronger. Trees also are anti-fragile. Trees, it's interesting if you're familiar with the biosphere, Biosphere 2, now it belongs to Arizona State University, it's here in Arizona, and so they made Biosphere 2 and it was this artificial environment, um, this, this kind of bubble that was its own ecosystem inside and they were growing trees inside this biosphere and they found something interesting was that these trees, they would grow up really quick and then doop, fall over. <laughs> grow up really quick and boop, fall over. As soon as they reached a certain height, they would fall over and they were going, why are these trees falling over? And they began to study and look at it and what they realized was, no wind, right? The trees were falling over because there was no wind. And what they hadn't taken into consideration was in this protective bubble of the biosphere, there was no wind, but trees need wind because when trees encounter the resistance of the wind, they begin to develop thicker bark and they begin to actually help them grow resilient and strong. And even more than resilient, they become stronger through the stress and the tension and the pressure that the wind puts on them. Trees are anti-fragile. The wind doesn't kill the trees, but it makes them not weaker. It actually makes them stronger. And I wonder how many of us are trying to create our own little protective bubble, our own biosphere too that kind of protects us from anything difficult or painful or challenging, that relationship that we just want to write off as toxic or that thing that we just want to, person we just want to delete out of our phone and cut out of our lives because, ah, it's just too much. We want to create a protective biosphere bubble and the challenge becomes you got no wind. When you start thinking that anything that doesn't kill you makes you weaker, you try and protect yourself from all those challenges or things that are actually a part of what God wants to grow to shape you and form you and mold you and make you mature and make you stronger in him. You and I need wind. Many counselors and psychologists are worried that we are uh, misusing the language of trauma today. They talk about how professionals use the terminology of trauma to mean something severe abnormal, a life-threatening event, something like war or rape or torture. But increasingly today in pop culture, the language of trauma is used to describe anything that's upsetting or painful or difficult. Had a bad hair day, so traumatic, right? <laughs> I overheard a comment I didn't like, oh, it was traumatic, right? Uh, Bessel van der Kolk, he is the trauma expert and author of the international bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score on Trauma, and he is concerned that many are referring today to the pandemic as a quote-unquote collective trauma because he's concerned this undermines the significant experiences of actual trauma. And the concern for counselors and psychologists is not just with how broadly we use this language today, but it's also that historically, like properly, professionally, language of trauma is used to name the very real uh, tra tragedies and things that in order that you can face your demons and in order that you can uh, deal these things. They no longer control your life, but you can face them and grow stronger by facing and gradually healing from and dealing with them. But today, many are using the language of trauma to excuse avoiding or dealing with difficult things. And the irony is that when you do this, it actually makes you even more anxious and depressed. If you see yourself as fragile and so weak and you need to protect yourself from any difficulty or challenge or obstacle, it actually increases your anxiety. And so I was talking with a friend uh, this month. He is a pastor from Africa. He is a pastor here in America, but he is from Africa. And part of his backstory, he's endured just horrific, a civil war in his own country, home country, where he saw his parents murder and experienced family members and friends and people from his community killed, and he survived as an orphan going through tremendous 
horror and he had to grow and then deal with reconciliation and healing and all those things. And he says, you know, that, that's part of his story. But now as a pastor, he finds himself the awkward spot of being at Starbucks with people that he's called the pastor. And they're, they're going, man, I, 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 this friend said something a little rude to me and it was just so traumatic. And he's like, you don't even know, you know? Like, or, and so there's this reality though. He would say that part of the deeper challenge is not just how the language is used again, but it's going like, for me that he was saying that language is actually something that I had to face my demons and deal with that history and, and grow through. And Christ has used it as horrific as it has been to grow me stronger. So I'm concerned many American Christians are using such language to avoid dealing with their problems and to cut people out their life very quickly that they might not need to, maybe the very people that Christ is calling them to love. I would say to you, don't get taken captive by the cult of self. Don't be taken captive by this bad idea, even if it's promoted by philosophers today in their flashy dress and whatever, you know, thing. Don't be taken captive by this cult of self because Jesus says, I'm gonna say to you the same thing that I tell my kids, you can do hard things, right? You can do hard things. Jesus says you are not fragile, you are anti-fragile. In the power of his spirit, he can actually use those things to develop in you a resilience. That Jesus actually uses hard things and difficult relationships to grow you and to mature you and to make you stronger. And to be very clear, I am not talking here about a relationship or environment that you may be in if there's a systemic, like a pattern of abuse. I'm not talking about that. That is not anti-fragile. That is destructive and horrible. And you, you want to be safe. If you need help, we want to help you get out of that situation. But what I'm talking about here today is the everyday difficulties that are a part of actual life and relationship with other people and challenges that we face in our life. Here's a sign that you are in the cult of self, that when life does get hard, you can get bitter and experience a hatred towards God. For many of us, as you start to get older and you see your parents die or your kids not turn out the way you expected or you start to experience chronic pain, you can kind of start going, man, God, this isn't what I signed up for. This is actually, I, th I thought my life was just gonna be protected from anything difficult. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus says, I am actually with you in it and I can help you go stronger through it that the, the wind some of you are experiencing right now, Christ wants to use that to help you grow that thicker bark, that more resilient character that he's preparing you for the glory of his kingdom. And Jesus says, he's calling us to take up our cross and follow him. And no matter what the devil may try and throw your way, try and take you down, the cross and resurrection reveal that it's not just what doesn't kill you, makes you stronger, it's even what kills you will ultimately make you stronger. Because even death does not have the last word. Christ has come out the other side and he will even use that to raise you up stronger and glorified in resurrection in his kingdom with him. So we need to be on guard against some of these bad ideas. But these are not only according to human tradition, Paul says. He goes on, verse eight. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. But he also goes on, he says, it's also according to something more, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. These elemental spirits, 
Paul is saying, don't get taken captive by the dark powers. Don't get taken captive by the dark powers. These philosophies are not only according to human tradition, but to these elemental spirits. And this is the language of spiritual forces and powers that are behind these destructive ideologies. That some of these ideas in the world, they are not just ideas in the head or in the classroom, but animating forces wreaking havoc in the world. I was horrified this week to see the shooting in Buffalo, New York and the racist manifesto that the shooter had published. We were rightly horrified. And those ideas that he was promoting, that he was using, they were not just distortions. They were not just bad ideas. They were demonic, Paul is saying. They were motivated. Racism and violence is motivated by these dark powers, these destructive ideologies. Paul's going, don't be deceived. Don't be taken captive. These are not just ideas people are talking about in the classroom. These are forces at work seeking to unravel God's good world. There are dark powers loose in our world. And they use these ideas to wreak havoc and destruction. Paul's saying here that you have an enemy who wants to take you out wants to take you out of commission, out of being effective in the kingdom, out of being useful and being part of the life-giving presence of Jesus' reign in the world. And that means that there is another team in this world. There is another kingdom of this world. There is a tyrant, a would-be king named Satan and his demonic minions who seek to kill and devour and destroy. And their weapon, we're told, is lies. Paul says here, Uh, that they work according to empty deceit, empty deceit. These dark powers are out to seduce you and to deceive you with lies. It's an interesting weapon that there is this spiritual warfare that is going on, but it's maybe not the images that you would associate with spiritual warfare. It's not like the Marvel Universe where you've got Thor and Thanos, and there's explosions and swords and superpowers and everything going off. No, their weapon is actually not swords and supernatural powers, it's lies. The enemy works with lies and temptation and deceit and seduction. That's how you get taken captive. This is the battle of lies versus the truth, and this brings us to a second lie in the cult of self, and that lie is this. Always trust your feelings. Always trust your feelings, right? This is the probably dominant, this is a dominant lie in the cult of self, and there's kind of this idea of what some have called self-expressive individualism. The highest goal in life is to look within and find out who you are and, and, and then to tap into that and express that to the world. And so you need to be on guard against uh, your family or tradition or community or institution or anything outside of yourself and ultimately even God because none of those things can actually call out your true identity, can actually shape and form and tell you who you really are. The only thing that you have to truly tell you is your feelings inside yourself to look within and say, here is who I really am. Elsa, Moana, whatever. Every Disney movie lately, this is the dominant theme. It's like, look within and express it to the world. This is me, right? The mantras of the cult of self, look within, just be yourself. One of the problems, though, is this, that your feelings are not actually all that reliable, 
right? Your feelings are not all that reliable. Uh, counselors will talk about distortions that we have, distortions of cognitive distortions, the distortions in our feelings and these distortions that we have in the way that we are feeling about the world. Uh, you may experience some of these. I know I do. Uh, one of the, there are many of them, but one of the distortions to talk about is catastrophizing. And so uh, sometimes I will catastrophize. I will get a paper cut, and immediately I will think that is going to give me an infection, and that infection is going to leave me incapacitated. And then I'm incapacitated. I won't be able to do my job. And when I won't be able to do my job, then my wife will leave me, and my kids, I won't be able to provide. And everyone will go, and I'll be begging on the side of the street, and it's a paper cut, right? Like, like I catastrophize. My feelings were catastrophizing and telling me that this little thing suddenly had become this overwhelming, huge thing. My feelings were not reliable. Another distortion is that your feelings can begin to interpret everything negatively. We're talking with someone once who had just left their spouse of over 20 years, and this is someone that I'd known. I'd been intimate in their life with their family. I knew from kind of what, what, what their life was like, but as I was talking with them, this person was saying, you know, I never, I never loved her. I never loved my wife. I, we, we've never been happy. I've never been happy. It's always been miserable. It's always, and he was going through and everything, like the whole history was getting painted negatively. And I was going, that is not true. Like I was there. I saw, I experienced. There were, yeah, you guys had a hard time, but there were good times too. There were happy moments. And what was happening was his feelings had become this negative filter through which his whole history and story was being told. And his feelings were not reliable. They were deceiving him as to an accurate representation of his story and their marriage and their family and the life that they had endured. Another problem with our feelings, another distortion is blaming. Our feelings can start to turn to, man, my parents are the source of all my problems. Or it's th that coach, if he just hadn't cut me from the team, we can start to go off and, and use our feelings to just kind of blame everyone out there and never look at perhaps is there something I need to take ownership of within? Your feelings are often not reliable, can be out of touch with reality and will lead you astray. But here's the other piece that Paul is saying is sometimes your feelings and these ideas and whatever, it's not just stuff going on in your head. These are actually dark powers at work there seeking to seduce you and to deceive you. I recently, uh, about two weeks ago, I woke up, I kind of went out, had my coffee, and I just had this thought, this feeling come rushing into my, into my head and my thoughts, and it was, your book is done, you're about to die. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Your book is done, you're about to die. And I was like, what's going on there? So I began to pray about that, and I went out, I'm like, Jesus, what's going on? Holy Spirit, there's, there's this feeling going on, I've got this thing. And what I, I believe the Spirit of God began to expose was there was this lie from the enemy coming in, and it was a sense of going, like, God's just out to use you. And some of you, I've been writing this book, just recently finished my next book, and, and so there's a sense of, like, well, God's just out to use you, but now that that's done, he's done with you. He's going to discard you. He's going to throw you to the pile because you're no longer useful. And I began to pray and say, Jesus, thanks for exposing the lie. Now, what's your truth. And what I heard Christ say was this, I haven't called you to use you, but to love you, right? Like, I haven't called you first and foremost to use you or to get stuff done or whatever. I've called you first and foremost to love you. And some of you need to hear this morning that God hasn't called you to use you and just get stuff done through you. Like, yeah, that flows downstream ideally, but first and foremost, God has called you not to use you, but to love you. 
And when your feelings tell you otherwise, you need to confront those lies with the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, that your security is in Christ. And here's the thing, too, is that those feelings, it would be reductionistic to think those were just synapses firing in my brain or things just going on. Those were actually dark powers, elemental spirits, forces of the enemy at war against my soul. And similarly for you, sometimes those thoughts you have in your head, those lies you begin to believe, those things that you are experiencing and hearing, and you just kind of go, man, this is, my, this is my thought process, this is my feelings, this is what I got going on. Don't trust your feelings, trust Christ, right? Like Christ calls you to go, no, look not to him. Your feelings may not be reliable, but he is. He is. So don't get taken captive by the dark powers, we need to recognize that some of these things, they are not just distortions internally, they are demonic. They're a war against you. There, are, there is an us versus them out there, right? But the real us versus them, it is not left versus right, it is not up versus down, it is not black versus blue, it is not Brene Brown versus Jordan Peterson, it is not Walmart versus Target. The real us versus them is the life-giving kingdom of Jesus against the death-dealing, destructive ideologies and powers of our world. And they are often at work through your feelings, tempting you and seducing you, trying to bring you to something that is not actually true. And Paul is saying, don't be taken captive. Don't be taken captive. Your feelings, again, they may not be reliable, but Jesus is. You can turn to him and find your confidence and security in him. Okay, well, how do we do this? How do we not live by lies, but rather by the truth. How do we live by the truth? Well, let's go back to verse six. In verse six, where Paul opens it saying, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's saying here is, follow your captain. Right? Follow Christ, your captain, because the reality is he's already got the other team's flag. Right? Like he has already won the victory. Paul says, if you have received him, then walk in him. So if you gave your life to Christ, if you received the spirit of God, then walk in that reality. Paul's going, look at your jersey. Remember the team that you're on and follow your captain. Don't be seduced by the enemy and the other team. Paul goes on to say, like, essentially, you have already died to the cult of self. Look at this. In verse 9 to 15, Paul essentially says, that's my, my paraphrase, my JBRV, the Josh Butler revised version, right? His paraphrase here is, Paul goes on, he says, you've died to the cult of self. He says this, he says, um, in verse 9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Not in you, not in yourself. Your hope is not in yourself. It is in Jesus. He is where the fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He goes on, he says, As, and you have been filled in him. It's in him that you have access to deity, to the life of God with you and for you. Him who is the head of all rule and authority, Jesus is higher than the elemental spirits of the world. He's higher than the dark powers that want to take you captive. And his truth is stronger than the bad ideas circulating out there. 
Paul goes on, he says, in him, Jesus, so in Jesus also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul's saying, you had a circumcision. You didn't just get the tip cut off of the foreskin. You got your whole flesh, your whole body buried with Christ and put to death in the grave. You, yourself has been crucified that you might be live unto Christ. How was that self, the self of the flesh, put to death? Well, he says, having been buried with Jesus in baptism. Yourself was crucified with Christ in order, he goes on, in which you also, in your baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God. You have, been, you have already died in Jesus and been raised with Jesus. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Saying what you could not do in your cult of self, God has done for you in Christ. How did he do this? He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our victory is not in ourself, it is in Christ and his victory for us. He goes on, finally, he says, Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus got the other team's flag. <laughs> Jesus has already won the victory. The victory is found not in the cult of self. The antidote to the cult of self is found in the culture of Jesus. That now, our victory is not in what we can do in within us. It is in Christ as we look to him. And so the culture of self will say, always trust your feelings. But the culture of Jesus says, always trust your Savior. The cult of self says, use your feelings to determine reality. But the culture of Jesus says, let his story determine your reality. The cult of self says, avoid things that are painful because they'll make you weaker. And the culture of Jesus says, we can go into and endure things that are painful because we know he is using them to make you stronger. The culture of self says, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And the culture of Jesus says, even what kills you, God will use to make you stronger, to raise you up in him. Why? when you've been freed from the restrictive, gray, abysmal cult of self, when you've been freed and delivered and liberated into the life-giving culture of Jesus, why would you go back into captivity? Why would you go back into captivity? I was reading uh, this week excerpts from Viktor Frankl, famous Jewish author who lived through and endured the, the concentration camps, Nazi Germany. He describes the, the horror of life there, of friends and loved ones and people that he'd seen die, and describes kind of the gray, abysmal conditions that the dark powers through those destructive ideologies had wreaked in very real lives in the world. This wasn't just capture the flag, this was real captivity dark and ugly and brutal, a sign of the kind of death and destruction that Jesus has come to conquer and bring life to. But Frankel also talks about being liberated from captivity. When he got his freedom, stepping outside those gray, abysmal walls again and seeing this light and the sunshine and the 
fresh air again. And he says this, he says, uh, one day, a few days after the liberation, I walked through the country past flowering meadows for miles and miles toward the market town near the camp. Larks rose to the sky and I could hear their joyous song. There was no one to be seen for miles around. There was nothing but the wide earth and sky and the lark's jubilation and the freedom of space. I stopped, looked around, and up to the sky. And then, he says, I went down on my knees. At that moment, there was very little I knew of myself or of the world. I had but one sentence in mind, always the same. I called to the Lord from my narrow prison, and he answered me in the freedom of space. Jesus, I called to you from my captivity. You delivered and set me free. Frankel's response is to fall to his knees and to worship and follow Jesus. Our response to Jesus, our deliverer who has set us free from captivity, is to fall to our knees and to worship. And why would you want to go back to the suffocating, claustrophobic, self-contained life and the cult of self? When there is the freedom and music and joy and delight and song and light and fresh air in the culture of Jesus and his presence. When we're tempted to go back to that captivity, I believe, we're invited to say, no, I, I died to the cult of self. I died to living for myself. I don't live for myself any longer. I live for him and in him and with him. I'm out of that captivity and I ain't going back. Jesus, I want to live in your culture, your team. I want to follow my captain. And I want to invite us right now this morning, uh, take some time to pray. Maybe you're like me two weeks ago where you've got some kind of lie that the enemy has been trying to speak into your life. We want to take some time right now for prayer and listening prayer, I want to invite you as we close our eyes just to listen and even just beneath your breath, just kind of ask you this, man, is there, is there a lie? What's the lie? What's the temptation? What's the deceit? What's the seduction that maybe it's been so hard to see because I've just been swimming in it. I've just been living in it. We want to take some time to pray, Jesus, would you expose the lies the enemy wants to use to hold you in captivity? And then in a moment, we're also going to pray for him to reveal the truth. But I want to invite you to close your eyes to join me in prayer. And Jesus, we come before you, our captain. God, you've already got the other team's flag. You've already won the battle, Lord. And we know, God, man, when we get taken captive by these lies, it doesn't mean we're no longer on your team. We, may, we still got the jersey. We're still in Christ. But God, we want to get to participate with you, Lord, in the victory of your kingdom, even here and now. And so, Lord, I want to pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would minister every person in this room, and I'm going to ask, Lord, what is the lie? What is the fear the enemy is trying to speak that is not from you? Create some space of silence right now, and Spirit, just ask that you would minister to your people and reveal and expose the lies of the enemy. Now, holding that exposed in the open before you, we ask Jesus, what is your truth 
We know that this spiritual warfare, it's not through explosions and grenades, but oh God, it's, it's at root, it's battle lies versus the truth. And so we want to hear your voice, Lord, reaffirm your word, the truths of your gospel to us, Jesus. Would you minister to your people, to your spirit this morning, the truth that they need personally, individually, that we need, God, to hear from you, to set us free, to create space now that you might minister to us, Jesus. Jesus, you said the truth, you are the truth, God, and the truth will set us free. And so, Jesus, we thank you. You have come to set us free. We thank you that the victory has been won. We thank you we already know the outcome. Our hope is in you. And so we worship you, Jesus. We follow you. God, we want to live in you, walk in you, live with you. Lord, faithful to you as your people. We no longer want to live captive to the cult of self, Lord. We want to live into the life-giving culture of you, Jesus. Lord, we worship you, and we give you all glory and honor and praise. Amen. As we come to communion this morning, we come to respond and worship, to fall to our knees, perhaps, like Frankel, or to lift our hands and to worship our captain who has set us free. And as we come to communion this morning at the tables, we come to the captain who was taken captive to set you free that Jesus allowed his self to be taken. He gave his self to be killed in order to set you free, in order that you might no longer live for yourself, but live in him and with him and for him. Jesus didn't live by his feelings, but for his father, saying, God, not my will, but yours be done and display that even what killed him actually made him stronger. That now as we come to this bread and this wine, he offers us his life given for you, his blood shed for you, in order to build you up and make you stronger, whatever you may be going through this morning. So let's come to Jesus, let's worship him, let's feast on him, and let's declare, Jesus, you are our captain, we'll follow you.